You know, to be a Christian is synonymous with being on a mission. I don't know if you've ever thought about that, the Christian life in that way before, but it's true. To be a Christian is synonymous with being on a mission. What I mean is when God called you, he simultaneously recruited you into a mission that at the exact same time, he awakened you by sovereign grace. He made you an ambassador and messenger of that grace. What I'm saying is in the exact moment that you were rescued by Jesus Christ, you were in that very same moment recruited by Jesus Christ. That when you were delivered by his sovereign power, you were then drafted into his sovereign plan. That when you were saved out of the world, you were then simultaneously sent into the world. That's what it means to be a Christian. Not merely the moral improvement of your life, but the joining of a movement as your life. And yet my great burden, one of my burdens this morning is to tell you that that movement and mission to which you were called is not only difficult, it is impossible. It is impossible by human means. Reaching every tribe and tongue and nation and people. We growing as a church, not numerically necessarily, but spiritually to make a lasting impact for eternity. We becoming a thriving, holy, replicating church that makes disciples, that plants churches, that makes disciples. That's never going to happen. Ever. On our own, by ourselves. And heck, it's not even just impossible. It's really, really dangerous. It just might and probably will lead to persecution. So the burden is, if God doesn't come through and provide exactly what we need, we might as well throw in the towel of Christianity. Because without the Father's power, without the Son's intercession, Without the Spirit's empowering work of empowering the word, we will lose our faith. We will be devoured by the devil and we'll be, we'll be so distracted away from the mission that no one will hear the gospel and the powers of darkness will win. Those are the stakes. And they could not be higher. And yet that's only, that's only if the Father doesn't come through for us. Because if he does, and mark my words, he will, then that means that the only thing in life we have to fear is fear. And we know that the Father will come through and provide what we need for the mission to which he has called us, because that is the very thing that Christ prays for in our text this morning. You remember the scene, just minutes, minutes before a, a gang of thugs come in with their torches and pitchforks to arrest Christ. Christ prays to the Father. And what's so astonishing about what he prays is that what he prays reveals is that all of human history is just one giant collaboration by the persons of the Trinity to get people saved. And yet what we also find out is that there is a means and an instrument to get those people saved. 
and it is the people of God known as the church. That as Christians, we are not just recipients of God's grace. We are instruments of God's grace sent to save ruined sinners from eternal woe and despair. In other words, if you are saved here this morning, you have been set apart and sent back into the world for a sacred mission of reaching those who are in the world. That's what Christ prays. And, and the reason why we're talking about this this morning and not Isaiah 36, which was the original plan, but the reason why we're talking about this is because I made a promise a couple years ago to preach on John 17 every year. You didn't ask me to make that promise, but I made that promise. And the reason why I will preach on this is because the implications of what Christ prays here are simply staggering for our church. I'm preaching on this because Christ reveals in the most provocative terms possible what God is doing in the world through his son. And what God is doing in the world through his son is saving those whom he chose before time began to savor the riches of eternal life. And you understand your lives are a part of that. This church is a part of that. Don't you, don't you see? We are the means. Those who will be there in the future kingdom and beyond will be there precisely through the means and witness of the church. And of this church in particular. And so I couldn't think of any better way to begin a new year than a, with a reminder and a refresher and a reset and a recalibration of who we are as a church what we're doing as a church, what our mission is as a church, where we're headed as a church, and what our eternal destination is as a church. Put it this way, if you want to inspire a whole church to be a global outpost of joy in a world of despair, if you want to grip a whole church and encourage them to face the loaded gun of a hostile culture, if you want to grip a whole church to give their lives to the global cause of the king, you must give them a vision. And what better vision to give than the one that Christ himself displays in his prayer to the Father? Because this is where all passion for mission begins. Here we go. This morning and next week. This morning and next week, I want you to see from John 17, 10 or possibly more implications. <laughs> we'll see what happens next week. But 10 implications of Christ's prayer to the Father that fuel our passion to finish the mission. That's where we're headed. 10 logical implications of Christ's prayer to the Father that fuel our passion to finish the mission. And the prayer breaks down into three parts. Let's look at part one, the triune foundation of the mission, the triune foundation of the mission. Because do not forget where we're at here in John's gospel in John 17. In a matter of minutes, Christ will be in custody, being interrogated by the authorities, and six to eight hours from now, even before breakfast is on the table, he'll be crucified for the sins of the world. And yet on the brink of all that, what does Christ do? He prays. He prays. 
verses 1 through 5, he prays for himself. In verses 6 through 19, he prays for the disciples and their daring mission to go behind enemy lines and infiltrate the darkness and reach the nations with the gospel. And in verses 20 through 26, get a load of this. He prays for you. For you. And every soul the Father chose before time to be saved. And so what this means is, is that even though chapter 17 is only 26 verses long, crammed into those 26 verses is all of eternity and the plan of salvation. And there they are, picture them. Christ and the disciples sitting around, reclining around this table in a dimly lit, rented upstairs room in downtown Jerusalem. Their stomachs are full, their plates are empty, their hearts are heavy. Christ has just delivered the most knockout after dinner speech in history. And then it's in chapter 17, verse one, where the master begins to pray. Look at the text. Jesus spoke these things. And after lifting up his eyes into heaven, he said, father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the Son may glorify you. Do you hear that? The hour has come, Father. The hour has come. The moment we've both been waiting for since before the foundation of the world has come, it is here, it has arrived, and yet the question is the hour for what? What hour? And he answers the question. Look what he says. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. That's the hour. It's the hour of his glory. Not 60 minutes on a clock, but the appointed hour of his greatest achievements, which are his sin-bearing death for sinners and his grave-defying resurrection from the dead. Those, that is his hour of glory, which is no small thing because his Death and resurrection are the key to the entire plan of salvation. Everything hinges on these moments, on these, these transactions. This is the key to the entire operation. If you are saved here this morning, and I hope you all are, it is precisely because this hour arrived. But then in verses 2 through 4, Christ reveals how this glory, how his glory would be achieved. And if you like hearing secrets of national security, you will love hearing secrets of eternal security. Starting in verse two, look at the text. The hour has come, Father. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. Here it is. Since you gave to him authority over all flesh so that everyone whom you have given to him, he shall give to them eternal life. And this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you sent. I have glorified you on the earth by completing the work you have given me to do. You see the secrets there? The top secret plot that is revealed, it is subtle, but it is profound. Notice in verse two, he reveals the people at the center of this plan of redemption. He just said, Father, you have given to me authority over all flesh. Meaning what? What is all flesh? 
You know what that is? That's humanity. That means that before time, the father gave to his son the gift of having sovereign authority over all of humanity as a whole for all human history. And yet that is not the only gift the father gave his son. Did you see the second gift? Look very carefully. Yes, gift number one, he gave to the son authority over all flesh. But gift number two, he also gave to the son a specific subset of humanity in particular. And to these people alone, the son gives eternal life. Did you see that? He has authority over all flesh, but there is a particular people as a gift from the Father to the Son. And these alone get saved. These, to these alone, the Son gives eternal life. And if you are saved here this morning, he's talking about you. You are in the Bible. You are the love gift given from the Father to the Son before time began. And this is everywhere in John 17. Listen to how Christ prays to the Father. Listen about whom he prays. Look at verse 6. I manifested your name to the men, to the people you gave to me out of the world. They were yours and you gave them to me. Verse 9. I am praying for them. Notice, I am not praying for the world. But for those whom you have given to me because they were yours. Verse 20. I am not praying for these only, but also for those in particular who will believe in me through their word. Verse 24, those, Father, those whom you have given to me, I desire that they would be with me to see my glory. Do you see what is here? There is a particular people in history, handpicked by the Father single out and selected and given to the son for whom he would die and purchase with his blood. Put it this way, before time began, there was a Trinitarian gift exchange where the father gave his son souls from every nation for whom he would die and buy with his blood the treasure of eternal life. Because notice what he says in verses 9 and 10 about them. This is talking about the disciples, but by extension, it applies to us. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world. But for those whom you have given to me, because they are yours, and all the things which are mine are yours, and the things which are yours are mine, and I have been glorified by them. I mean, do you hear his language? I'm not praying for the world, Father. I'm not praying for them. But I am praying in particular for those whom you have given to me. They're yours, and they are mine, and they are ours, and I have been glorified by them. Which, which is shocking to say the least, isn't it? Because doesn't Christ love the whole world? I thought he loved the whole world. What does it mean he's not praying for the world? And, and that's true. He, he does love the whole world and everybody in it. And yet, and yet to make sense out of the Bible and the entire plan of redemption, you must come to grips with the fact that he loves those given to him by the Father in a particular way. 
in a saving way, and dare I say, in an electing way. Because the whole chapter and the whole Bible makes it absolutely clear, Christ did not die for everybody, but for nobody in particular. No, he died in particular for those souls given to him by the Father before time began. And the name for those handpicked by the Father, the, the name for those singled out and selected by the Father and given to the Son is what the Bible calls election. It is predestination. And what is election? What does it mean? But that your infinite joy in Jesus Christ was predestined for you before the ages began. And I find it very interesting, if not refreshing, don't you, that Christ speaks about one of the most controversial doctrines in the whole Bible in terms of a love gift exchanged between the Father and Son before the galaxies were made. Isn't that interesting? Revelation 13, 8 says that their names, their names were written in the Lamb's book of life before time. And they are everywhere in every tribe and tongue and nation and people and campus and workplace and neighborhood and apartment complex. And they are not yet saved and yet they will be saved because the Father chose them to be saved. And the son purchased them so that they can be saved. And get a load of this. They are among you in your life. You know some of them. You interact with some of them. Isn't that interesting to you? That you know some people whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. You know some people who are among this gift given from the Father to the Son, and yet they still don't yet believe. And yet they will believe. Because all you've got to do is go out there and find them by indiscriminately proclaiming the gospel to everybody. Don't you see? This, this prayer has staggering missiological and evangelistic implications, does it not? You understand, this gift from the Father to the Son is, is the absolute guarantee that God's plan will be accomplished. The nations will be reached. The elect will be saved. The darkness will be broken. The church will be built. You understand, rather than kill the urgency to preach and to pray, sovereign election actually guarantees that our prayers and our preaching are not in vain. And for that mission, may God give you strength. May God give you strength because you're really, really going to need it, which brings us to part two of the prayer. Number two, the holy consecration for the mission. The holy consecration for the mission, verses 11 through 19, because again, again, that's just the thing about what it means to be a Christian. It is synonymous with being on a mission. Again, you have to really understand that, that being a Christian is not merely the moral improvement of your life, although it is that, but it is the joining of a movement as your life. 
because you need to understand that salvation doesn't just mean that God chose you to save you, but that he chose you to save you, to send you for a mission. Do you see? And for that mission, we will need protection. Look at verses 10 and 11. He's describing the disciples by extension, describing us. Look what he says. Father, I'm praying for them because they're yours. And all the things which are mine are yours and the things which are yours are mine. And I have been glorified by them. Notice, and I am no longer in the world, but they themselves are in the world. And I am coming to you. Do you feel the tension there? I'm leaving, Father. I'm coming back to you just like we agreed, and it'll be the sweetest reunion in history, but just like we agreed, Father, we're going to leave them in the world to carry out the global mission to the world, which is a weighty thing, isn't it? Because you know that to be in the world automatically makes you a sheep in the midst of wolves, a lamb in the lion's den, a goldfish among piranhas, whatever, you get the idea. You understand to live in the world is a very dangerous proposition for you because like Christ said in John 15, the world hates you. Even if they don't know you, they hate you. And if they don't hate you now, when they come to find out what you really stand for, they will hate you. And if they persecuted him, they will gladly persecute you. When he says world, he means the geographical hotspot of hatred and hostility and animosity towards Christ and his representatives. This is a really serious issue, which is why Christ prays what he does in verse 11. Look at the text. I am no longer in the world, and they themselves are in the world, and I am coming to you. Here it is. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given to me that they would be one as we are. Do you see that? That is the sovereign work by the Father that we need to finish the mission. We need him to keep us. To keep us. Meaning what? Meaning with all the power that makes him God, he needs to preserve us and protect us and to keep us from destruction, from wandering into sin and error and heresy, and apostasy. You woke up believing in Jesus this morning because of a sovereign work of God in your souls. And we really need this because if you haven't noticed, things are getting a little tense in the world. It's getting a little hostile in the world. The vultures of the culture are closing in around the church, hoping that it's going to die soon. And you understand the world in which you live will accept three things from you. There are three things that, that there's an agreement that the world implicitly makes with us, and it will accept these three things and nothing else. Number one, for you to be silent. Number two, for you to compromise your beliefs. Or three, for you to die. That's the agreement. You shut your mouth, you become a liberal, or you die. That's all they're going to tolerate. You understand that, don't you? And I'll just, 
you just need to know that the reason why that is, is because everything that Christ is and everything that he represents is a threat to the things that they love and treasure the most. And since he's not here to persecute in person, you are going to have to do. And you'll do just fine. And so you see that Christ is anticipating, is he not, the persecution to come? He is anticipating this. He is expecting this because it is coming for us. It is coming for us. It's something to be afraid of, but it is coming. We've had it so easy in this Disneyland of Christianity. But the gates of comfort and security are closing in America. And mark my words, they are closing fast. So what do we do? What do we need? We need the Father to keep us with his power. Because notice verse 12, Christ gives the reason why he praises. Look what he says. Keep them in your name, Father. Why? Because when I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given to me, and I protected them, and none of them perished except the son of destruction, that the scriptures may be fulfilled. Again, notice the key words that he uses. I was guarding them. I was protecting them. I was keeping them and none of them perished. Not one of the ones you gave to me was lost except for Judas. And that was only because it was ordained to happen. But I'm leaving now, Father. I'm going to the cross and there's going to be this little crack, this little gap in the space-time continuum when I'm not going to be able to hold them any longer. And so I need you to hold them and keep them from destruction. And you see, this work of both the Father and the Son, because John 10, 28 and 29 says that both the Father and the Son hold us in their sovereign grip. That is the assurance that we will persevere to the end and not lose our faith. It is also the perseverance. It is also the guarantee that we will persevere in the mission that we have been given. If we're going to finish the mission as disciples of Christ, we need the sovereign power of God to defend us. And to keep us. Look what he says in verse 14. Father, I have given to them, to these disciples, I have given to them your word. And the world has hated them. Why? Because they are not from the world, even as I am not from the world. You see, that's cause and effect. That's theological science. You join one team that autom automatically makes you the enemy and the rival of all the others. You believe and you receive and embrace the word of Christ that automatically makes you an object of hostility and hatred and persecution. You understand that, right? I've said it before. What we need is lion-hearted courage to speak the truth and broken-hearted compassion to speak the truth, if need be, with tears in our eyes. And just let the chips fall where they may. Look at the end of verse 14. You are not from the world. Even as Christ is not from the world. So they are going to do to you the very same things that they did to him. And so the question is, in light of that dangerous relationship with the world, what is the solution? What do we need? Early rapture? Build a commune like the Amish? 
quit and throw in the towel? None of those things. Look at verse 15. What is the, what is the solution? Father, I am not asking that you would take them out of the world, but that you would keep them from the evil one. Isn't that interesting? Just because you're likely to get shot is no reason to remove you from the battlefield. Just because you're likely to get burnt is no reason to remove you from the kitchen. Just because the world is hostile and dangerous, that is not a good enough reason to remove you out of the world. Church, you have to understand something. In a culture and an age obsessed with our safety, obsessed with our securities, the motto of the Great Commission is not safety first. The motto is Matthew 24, 14. This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. That's the motto. Come hell or high water, that is the mission. And you understand that the cost to get the gospel to the nations will be outrageously enormous. People are going to die for the cause. People have died. They are dying. They will continue to die for the cause. And yet that is still not a good enough reason to move us to a safer place. Because what Christ prays instead is exactly what we need to finish the mission. Look again at what he says. Father, I'm not asking, definitely not asking that you remove them out of the world. But what I am asking is that you would keep them from the evil one. That's what we need. What that does not mean is that we will be spared from all diabolical influence or harm that may come our way because you know by God's sovereign design, the evil one is allowed to spit his poison and to breathe his fire. The world, as it were, is the devil's jungle and he is the lion. We get that. We understand that. But what that means is, what he means is, is that the sovereign work of the Father preserves our faith in and through his schemes, which would otherwise destroy us were we left to fend for ourselves. And yet how? How does this happen? How are we, how are we protected from the schemes of the evil one? And there are two ways, two means that the Father uses to preserve and protect us from the diabolical power of the devil. Two means, number one, to protect you and preserve you, the Father uses his word. To preserve you and to protect you, the Father uses his word. Because you understand the word of God is the Kevlar vest, the bulletproof Armor that keeps you from getting gunned down by the sniper shots of Satan and sin and heresy and apostasy, which means if you are not in the word, if you are not saturated by the word, you are needless to say, dangerously vulnerable. You have already drifted and you don't even see it. Number two, the second means the father uses to keep us and preserve us. The Father keeps you through the means of the local church. The Father keeps you through the means of the local church. You see, you need, need the firewall of the local body to persevere in your faith firm until the end. 
you need that. It is non-negotiable. Because if you are not affectionately connected to the local church, you are literally indefensible against the God of this world and the powers of the darkness. Why? Because we are one another's immune system. And the word of God is the power that produces the passion to engage in the most loving and dangerous cause in the universe called the Great Commission. And speaking of, speaking of the Great Commission, notice where Christ goes in verses 16 through 19. He says, they, they are not from the world, even as I am not from the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Even as you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. And I literally sanctify or consecrate myself on their behalf in order that they would be sanctified in the truth. Do you see that there in verse 17? Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And I just need you to, to know that that verse for years and years has been misapplied out of its missionary context. Christ uses the word sanctify, and so people automatically assume, oh, he's talking about moral purification, but he's not. He's talking about holy consecration. What he means is to be set apart for a sacred purpose, meaning that it, that they, we exist only for one thing. That's what he means. Because ladies don't wear their wedding dress to do yard work or cook dinner or walk the dog or anything else for that matter, because that gown exists for one single purpose, and to wear it for any other purpose would be to profane it. That's exactly the same for us. We are sanctified. We are consecrated, meaning we are set apart for a sacred purpose, and to live for any other purpose would be to profane our calling as blood-bought disciples of Jesus Christ. And so when Christ says, Father, sanctify them in the truth. He means set these people apart for a sacred mission. He's talking about mission, not merely don't think too narrow and think, oh, be a overseas missionary, get on a plane and go to another country. That's not what he means. It is the mission in general of reaching with the gospel those whom the father chose and gave to his son. And we know that he's talking about mission because look at verse 18, very next verse. Even as you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. Do you see? Church, listen carefully. All our lives are is an extension and continuation of Christ's own mission to save ruined sinners from eternal woe and despair. You understand that, right? And what that means is, listen carefully, what that means is we abdicate our identity as Christians if we have no meaningful engagement with the world for the sake of Jesus Christ and the gospel. This means that the world in which we live is the mission field to which we are sent. And maybe you think, well, 
I don't see us doing a lot of evangelism. I don't see us doing a lot of things that are outward. Well, that's why we do equipping classes, because we want to deepen your well. We want to so strengthen you in sound doctrine that you have a deeper well than their bucket can go, that you are equipped to be able to reach those whom the Father chose and gave to his Son. I mean, we need to do more equipping as a church. We need to give you more tools, but... This is on our shoulders to reach those whom God has placed in our lives. That's what this means then. What this means, listen very carefully, is that in your classes and at your jobs, at your workplaces, in your apartment complexes, in your own neighborhoods, maybe even in your own families, you are an undercover agent sent into each of those spheres. But unlike undercover agents, your goal is not to conceal your identity as Christians, but precisely to reveal your identity as Christians. In fact, you are to blow your cover really early, early on, as those sent by Jesus Christ to save sinners from destruction with the gospel. You look like everybody else. But you're not like everybody else because you have been saved out of the world and then saved into, sent into the world to save those whom the Father has chosen. That's your mission. That, that's who you are. And, and, and again, that, it, that doesn't look the same for everybody. It doesn't mean that you have to get on a plane and go overseas. It might mean that. But my question for you is, do you own this? Do you own this? Own what? Own the fact that your identity as a Christ follower automatically means that you have been set apart for a sacred purpose and then sent into the world. Do you own that? And maybe you're thinking, well, I I don't quite have the zeal for that. I don't quite have the passion for that. I don't quite have the motivation for that. I don't quite have the equipping. I feel like I need to be able to do that. And that's okay. That's no problem. There is a cure for that. Look what he says in the second half of verse 17. Father, sanctify them in the truth. Here it is. Your word is truth. (laughs) Do you see the connection? The connection between word and witness Between scripture and speaking, between theology and missiology, don't you see what he's saying is, is that the word is the power that produces the passion. The word is the power that generates propulsion. We read and meditate on the scriptures, not merely to make ourselves feel better or because this is the the Christian version of therapy. No, we read scripture because truth is the nuclear power that generates propulsion that causes a chain reaction to give yourself to the cause. I want you to be in the word every single day, not because it checks the box but because it transforms your soul to see the world the way God sees the world. And how God sees the world is how a missionary sees the world because our God is a global God. Our God is a missionary God. You know you have your theology right when your theology begins to make you hear the screams of the damned. 
Which brings us to part three of the prayer. The eternal destination after the mission. The eternal destination after the mission. Because typically when reading a mystery novel, it's bad form to skip to the end and spoil the surprise. Right? Shouldn't do that. But that's exactly what Christ does in his prayer to the Father. He skips ahead to the glorious ending, the surprise ending of the saints, where you and I, where the elect will will. The, our eternal destination that awaits us. And, and this is the most loving thing that Christ could do for us because it is the foundation of our courage. Verses 20 through 26, Christ prays for you. Prays for you and every person throughout history that the Father has chosen to believe. And look carefully at verse 20. Oh, Father, I am not praying for these only, but for those who will believe in me through their word. I mean, do you hear what he's doing? Do you see what he's doing here? He is praying for millions and millions of souls in the future yet to be born, including the very people sitting in this room. That's astonishing. They were predestined by the Father. They will be purchased by the Son. They are protected by the Spirit. They are the elect. The sacred love gift from the Father to the Son. And although they are not yet saved, many of them, they will be saved because the Father chose them to be saved. And yet the question is, how will they be saved? How will they be saved? Through a vision? By a dream? It's kind of on their own figuring it out. What did Christ say? I am praying for those who will believe in me, dia tulagu auton, through their word. The word of the apostles. Scripture is the answer. Truth is the deal breaker. Do you understand? People only, only, only get saved through the proclamation of the gospel. You know this. In fact, the proclamation of the word of God should and must be the gourmet meal of every church and every ministry in that church or else there is no mission or it's not a church. This is the means by which ruined sinners are plucked from the flames and awakened from the dead. But, but I want you to notice something. This global mission is not just about individual witnesses. It is about a corporate witness, or as Christ says, we are one. Look at verses 21 through 23. I'm praying, Father, for those who will believe. Notice that they would be one. Even as you, Father, are in me and I am in you, that they would be in us so that the world would believe that you sent me. And the glory which you have given to me, I have given to them that they would be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they would be perfected into one. Why? So that the world would know that you sent me and you love them even as you loved me. <laughs> that is so staggering. I, I don't know how to wrap my head around it. Do you? It's, this is unbelievable. Because, because what exactly does it mean to be one? Do you see that there? That, that's a pretty big deal. That's central to, to the mission, to be one together. What does that even mean? I'll tell you what it's not. 
It is not some kind of mushy, sentimental unity. We're at the expense of our theological convictions. We just sort of hold hands and get along. No. A non-theological interfaith dialogue is, is the furthest thing from Christ's mind. In fact, it is the opposite of that because whatever it means, it is profoundly Trinitarian. Did you notice? I am praying that they would be one as you are in me and I am in you, that they would be in us, I in them and you in me, that they would be perfected into one. What does this mean? Well, because I have minutes and not hours. Here's what it means to be one. To be one together, listen carefully, means that we are a battalion of souls, chosen and predestined, washed in the Savior's blood, who do three things. One, we treasure Christ together in community. Two, we have unqualified submission to the word of Christ. And three, we love one another with radical affection, just like the persons of the Trinity. That's what it means. When you stand back and look at all that is included in this, that's what he means by one, that we are a battalion of souls chosen and predestined, washed in the Savior's blood who do three things. We treasure Christ together in community. We have unqualified submission to the word of Christ, and we love one another with radical affection, just like the persons of the Trinity. And should we do that, should we do those things, then the world will know. What? What will they know? Look at what Christ just said, the end of verse 23. When these things happen, when we become one, then the world will know that you sent me and you loved them even as you loved me. I mean, can you, can you see, get a sense even a little bit of, of the cosmic significance of being one together? We're not just having our private little party over here while the world burns. Now the world is God's theater. The church is the stage. And when we fulfill our mission to be one, what did Christ say the world would know? The world would know not only that the Father loves Christ, or th that the Father sent Christ, but that he loves us even as he loves his own son. I can't wrap my head around that. The very least it means is that when we do what churches are supposed to do, Inside, inside the walls, the life of the church is infinitely important. When we do in here what the church is supposed to do, that is one of the means that God uses to make Christ look beautiful and compelling to the watching world. Do you see? Our love for one another is literally a glimpse and a picture of the very love that exists within the Trinity itself. So the question is, the question for you is, do you own the local church as God's primary stage upon which his glory is put on display? Do you own the local church as the primary instrument through which his plan unfolds in the world. Another question, do you have any meaningful engagement with lost people? 
where they can see and experience the oneness about which Christ speaks? Do you see, if the church is the stage, as it were, then there has to be an opportunity for lost people to come and see the stage, see what's happening on the stage. And I don't merely mean that you invite them to church, although you should do that too, but rather I mean is do you weave and absorb lost people into your lives so that they can witness the oneness about which Christ speaks, so that they can see that A, Christ is real, and B, God loves you with infinite affection. Because notice, notice in verse 24 then. Notice where he goes. He, he describes the destination after the mission. I'm almost done here. Look what he says, verse 24. Father, those whom you have given to me, that's you, I desire that where I am, they would be with me in order that they would see my glory, which you have given to me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. What was the Trinity doing before time when nothing existed? Loving one another. But did you notice what Christ said? What I want out of this whole deal, Father, what I want out of this is that those whom you have given to me would be with me to see my glory. And you can tell by his language that his goal, his desire is not so that he could marvel at us forever but so that we could marvel at him forever. That's, that's what he means by his glory. Don't you see what makes all of eternity worth it and worth sacrificing everything for is precisely because on the eternal menu of heaven's delights is the unfiltered majesty of Jesus Christ, which will forever thrill the souls of the saints. That, that's what we're selling. Because you understand, eternal life is not just merely living a really long time or having a better quality of life. No, eternal life is to share in the life of the Trinity forever. Eternal life is to be caught in the crossfire of Trinitarian love and affection for all eternity. Eternal life is everlasting and ever-increasing delight in Jesus Christ forever, for infinite ages on end. That's what we're selling. Or should I say that's what we're preaching? And so what's my point? Well, why am I preaching this? What does any of this have to do with Christ Community Bible Church? And you can tell, can't you? It has everything to do with Christ Community Bible Church. There are logical implications for what Christ just prayed here. And these implications, listen carefully, these implications in this text demand that it is now time to take our church to the next level. It is now time to take our church to the next level. You have done well, church. You have been faithful. And you are to be commended for your faithfulness. And it has been a profound encouragement to me and to the other elders and small group leaders to see the growth in your lives, to see the, the growing redemptive relationships that we see happening here. We are seeing body life really beginning to emerge. We're seeing things happen and the one and others are beginning to happen in this church. And now it is time to move to the next phase of our church. The time is now. And next week, I'm going to preach an entire sermon 
just on the implications that John 17 has for our church moving forward. That's next week. That's it. Just, I'm going to preach on, I don't know how many implications we're going to have, but the implications that John 17 has for our church and what that means for us moving forward as a church. Nevertheless, here's a taste. Here's one takeaway for today. And this takeaway you must immediately implement into your lives. The takeaway is this. You need to leave this room with a new pair of eyes. You need to leave this room with a new pair of eyes. What I mean is, you need to nuance your understanding of what it means to be a Christian. You need to tighten your understanding of what it means to be a Christian. That you are not just a recipient of God's grace, but an instrument of God's grace to make disciples. Who make disciples. Who plant churches. Who make disciples. And on and on it goes till all of God's elect are reached and history is father already chose those people. The son has already paid for those people. The gospel is lethal and life-saving. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The question is, the question is, who has God providentially placed in your life where you now need to up the ante in making disciples, in reaching those whom God has placed in your life? So next week, don't miss it, implications of this prayer for our church moving forward. Let's pray. Well, Christ, the implications of what you prayed 2,000 years ago are inescapable. And they haunt us with joyful implications. And Lord, I know that, that, that everything that this would demand of us as a church does not come by human means or innovation or creativity. This only comes by a, a work of your sovereign power. It only comes, oh Lord, when we are faithful to the means that you have given to us. Oh Lord, that we don't have to be cute or clever or creative or innovative. We have to be faithful. And to just trust you to do in and through us what you, what you are pleased to do only and always for the glory of your son. And so that's what we're asking for. Well, Lord, we're not up to the task. We can't do this. Our lives are maxed. Many, many of our lives are distracted. And we need you, Lord. We need you to give us new eyes. New eyes that help us see what's really going on in human history that we have been saved to be sent to then save others through the proclamation of the gospel. So we ask you for the grace to be faithful to that in your son's name.